listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode four, what's wrong with those signs that say Latinos for Black Lives? I'm Karma Chavez, the chair of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And today on Latin Experts, I'm in conversation with Dr. Pablo Lopez Oro, a recent graduate with his PhD from the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies at UT. Dr. Lopez Oro will start a position as an assistant professor at Smith College this fall. He teaches courses on Black, Latin American, and U.S. Black, Latinx social movements, Black diaspora theories and ethnographies, and Black feminism's queer theory. His research interests include Black politics in Latin America, the Caribbean and U.S. Afro-Latinidades, Black, Latinx, LGBTQ movements and performances, and Black transnationalism. He is working on his first book manuscript, Hemispheric Black Indigeneity, The Queer Politics of Self-Making, Garifuna, New York, an ethnographic and oral history study on how gender and sexuality shape the ways in which Garifuna, New Yorkers of Central American transgenerational descent negotiate, perform, and articulate their multiple subjectivities as Black, Indigenous, and Latinx. So, Pablo, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm going to jump right in because I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And one of the reasons you came to mind as someone to have this conversation with was that earlier this summer, you sent a tweet that went viral. And I'm going to read that tweet and then I'm going to ask you about it. So the tweet said, I've been observing this troublesome slogan of Latinxes for Black Lives for a few days now. And I understand the importance of a politics of solidarity, but at the cost of continuing the erasure of Black Latinxes is deeply painful. We are more than a festival. So tell me, what finally pushed you to send that tweet, and what has the reaction been like since you did so? Yeah, that was a really interesting moment. Um, First of all, it did not cross my mind that it would get um, as many retweets and likes that it did. Um, but I was just really kind of growing, really frustrated about seeing these signs that kind of really, for me, invoked a particular kind of silencing and erasure of Black Latinos and Black Latinx folks, um, particularly around this notion of Latinxes for Black lives. I think there's this assumption, right, that Latinx is not a Black person, right, that this person is not a person of African descent or this is not a person already um, in the movement of Black Lives Matter, um, which I think has a longer uh, and, and, and deeper history in the Americas around the racial project of mestizaje in Latin America and how we think of Blackness in Spanish-speaking Latin American nation states. Um, but also, I wanted to conclude that tweet with this notion of we are more than a festival, because particularly, and that was actually me gesturing to kind of the ways in which we understand Afro-Latinx studies at this particular moment, um, when we think about Blackness within Latinidad, it, it has to go through some type of folkloric trope, whether it be dance, whether it be popular culture, whether it be music, right? So we're constantly, you know, Celia Cruz is a household name, right? We can point to her being a Black woman from Cuba. 
So these notions of Afro-Latinidad, I wanted us to think about, well, we're more than just a merengue, we're more than just a cumbia, right? We're more than just these kind of folklore tropes of dance and music. And Black Latinos and Black Latinx folks have already been part of Black liberation movements throughout the hemisphere, just like hashtag Black Lives Matter, right? So there's Black Lives Matter everywhere. It's been a political project, in fact, for a number of centuries now, and Black Latinx folks have been a part of that. So that's where my frustration came from. Um, the slogan itself really constructs this kind of binary where uh, the Latinx person is not a Black person, right? Um, and it's a particular kind of calling for a certain kind of Latinx subjectivities into that movement um, that doesn't recognize the fact that Black Latinx peoples are in that movement already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so I wanted to, when we were preparing for this conversation, uh, I was talking to you about when I made a similar move with a group of mostly non-Black Latinx folks in Madison, Wisconsin. And this was sort of during the first wave of Black Lives Matter in 2015. And a group of us got together and we decided that we wanted to issue a statement called unsurprisingly. Latinos are, I think we did Latinos uh, for Black Lives. And I thought I'd pull an excerpt from our letter. And I, part of the reason I want to share this, of course, is because here I am, chair uh, now chair of a department of Mexican-American and Latino-Latino studies. Uh, and at the time, you know, I'm a faculty mm-hmm. member and I, you know, I'm thinking about these things, I think. And yet, even I made this move. And, and so it mm-hmm. is so, uh, I think, prominent. And so I want to read just a quote from that letter and then maybe just have you talk through kind of the moves that I'm making. And it wasn't just me, it was me and about 15, 20 other people, but the moves we're Mm -hmm. making in this letter and how that kind of uh, reflects what it is that, that maybe that you're talking about and some of the problems with this move. So I'll just read a short excerpt here. We wrote, we as society have to abide by policies and structures that have separated and divided us. There's no natural alliance between us. We recognize that capitalist and white supremacist structures often work to pit us against one another. For example, if poor and working class black folks direct their anger at Latinx migrants who supposedly take the jobs of U.S. citizens, that keeps the attention off the way capitalism brutalizes all workers. And if leaders in Latinx communities encourage young Latinos to ascend by distancing themselves from black culture, implying that blacks are to blame for their poverty and that no Latinos are black, this reinforces forces anti-black racism, which benefits no communities of color. So, and I, I think you had a chance to take a look at this beforehand, but uh, I wonder if you want to talk about your kind of assessment of the moves we're making there as maybe emblematic of these kinds of moves. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, thank you so much for bringing that um, into the conversation, because I definitely had a chance to read through it. And I think you know, I had to process it, sit with it, right, for a couple of number of reasons. I think the notion of, you know, the notion of anti-Blackness in immigrant communities isn't isn't unique to Latinx folks, right? I'm, mm-hmm. You know, folks certainly have argued in their scholarship that Black immigrants are certainly anti-U.S. Black, right, in yeah. many ways, as, as they use their ethnicity to, to distance themselves from African Americans and particularly African American culture, Um you know, one of the things that makes me kind of think it's this, it, it brings me to this notion of like black and brown solidarity paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. So this, this important kind of 
scholarship that really teases out these moments historically where we see um, brown folks, Latinx folks uh, working across uh, lines, right? These color lines that are very much part of, you know, the Jim Crow U.S., right? So thinking about that and one of the things that's constantly persistent in this is that the absence of blackness already in Latinidad, right? So it's this racial formation of the Latinx identity uh, subjectivity that just erases black folks, right? And, and particularly yeah. erases black histories of Latinidad, right? Yeah. So one of these moments when we think about these statements or when we think about these moves is that if we were to deeply understand the hemispheric history of black folks in the, in, in the Americas and understand that Mexico and the rest of Latin America had more, 10 times more enslaved Africans and their descendants in that region. And how do we come to this moment where Latinx doesn't mean black, right? Yeah. Um, it, it's very, it's, it's this kind of legacy and persistence of the project of Mestizaje in the region, right? That really, you know, uh, Dr. Juliet Hooker talked about this in her book, Theorizing Race in the Americas, but Mestizaje travels really well. Right, um, Jose Vasconcelos Suelos writes really well about La Raza Cosmica in a way that he's writing in, on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. And this notion of, uh, of, or of racial mixture that presumes some type of racial democracy, well, the gaps are really clear, right? When uh, Latinx folks create a distance to other other black communities in the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, but it's not only happening in the U.S., right? It's happening in in countries in Latin America where mestizos who are in governmental power make these distancing from black communities in those countries. And I'm thinking particularly um, in the context of Central America where blackness has to come from somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. So to be a black Central American means that you must have generational heritage in the West Indies, or you must come from the Caribbean. You're, you can't be Honduran, right? Like the national subject of Honduran is a non-black person. Mm -hmm. um, so blackness seems to constantly be an alien, right? This alien subject that's a potential threat to the national subject. Um, and this is the thing that I'm constantly seeing even in the U S right. That, even though these these um, very important moments in the in historical scholarships between Black and Brown solidarity, uh, the Young Lords are a perfect example of a group of Puerto Ricans in New York City whose political manifestos were consciously not speaking about a uh, a racialization or a racial formation, right? So the Young Lords are a perfect example where they borrowed from another black political organization built collectively. Mm -hmm. um, but the Young Lords did not have an explicit um, interpretation of their racial consciousness in those political documents, right? Mm -hmm. And I think those are particular legacies of Latin American mestizaje, where race is consumed to racial mixture, and racial mixture is the absence of race, racial inequalities. 
right? Yeah. Uh, the myth of the racial democracy. Yeah. Well, I think this is interesting. I want to ask you to say a bit more about the concept of mestizaje and a bit more just about that as a concept, because I think um, I didn't grow up necessarily hearing that term. Uh, it was absolutely the idea of it, right? The racialized idea of it was absolutely affirmed in my family in all sorts of ways. Uh, but that wasn't a term we talked about. And so would you just say a little bit more about that term, just because I don't know who's going to be listening to this and what familiarity they're going to have with that kind of language. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's also a term I also didn't grow up with, right? So it's a term that really comes to to me, at least in college, and where I'm kind of digging into, like, Latin American history, wanting to know more about, well, the history of race. What is the history of race in Latin America? And so mestizaje is this racial discourse that happens um, actually at the turn of the century, right after the wars of independence in most Latin American countries. So basically, Tiana Pachel writes beautifully on this. Um, Nation states are building, right? So after these wars of independence, they're, you know, they're they're free from Spain. They're trying to figure out um, what they're going to be as a nation, as a racial identity, as a nation. Um, but in particular, as the history of Latin America, once these countries are freed from Spain, the majority of the population is black and indigenous. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of nation states. It's very similar. Into in, when I think about Mestizaje, I think about Jim Crow. It, there's a, a deep connection there for me, particularly because of how settler colonialism also happens in Latin America. Uh, the descendants of Spaniards become the presidents, right? The founding fathers of these nations of Colombia, Panama, Honduras, Cuba, right, are all descendants of Spaniards, right? So mm-hmm. um, here's a perfect example of settler colonialists um, trying to imagine a nation state. And their imaginary took them to this notion of racial mixture, Mm-hmm. And this notion of racial mixture is a really romanticized narrative of the nation state. Uh, the mixture, um, particularly in the context, right? So my reference is always going to be Honduras or the rest of Central America. So thinking in the context of Central America, the romanticization is between O Conquistador, a Spanish con- uh, conquest or warrior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a docile, submissive indigenous woman, right? So thinking about this kind of gendered, sexualized, violent national subject, this is the mestizo, right? And the mestizo becomes the national subject. um, And then mestizos, in fact, generationally stay in power. Um, And it is the, in the case of Honduras and in parts of the rest of Central America, uh, Africans are not configured into that mixture, right? Um, Right? And if they are... Um, like in the case of Mex- Mexico, they become a third rule, right? La tercera raíz, where mm-hmm. there's this notion of there is the presence, but they're so diluted into the mestizo subject that they're no longer negro, right, or African. Yeah. And if there are black people in Mexico, they're in Veracruz, right? Right. They're, they can't be in the capital, right? They're not in the capital. They're somewhere in Costa Chica. They're somewhere in Veracruz. They're somewhere removed from the center of political governance. Um, so that's how I see Mestizaje. I feel like there's thousands of other people who see sure. Mestizaje really differently. Um, but that's how I've understood it as uh, as a Black Honduran, as a Garifuna Honduran, uh, particularly when I think about the general generational violence um, that has been, um, been enacted on Black Hondurans and, and the erasure of Black Hondurans into the national subjectivity of what it means to be a Honduran. So, yeah. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I just think it's interesting that this is, it's such a controlling concept for so much of uh, Latino existence. And, and yet it, it actually does require some explanation and it helps to make sense of uh, how we are across the hemisphere, right, in terms of our racial formations. And so yeah, I, yeah, I want to yeah. actually return a little bit to, to some of uh, your research and, and, and thinking about um, the ways that you do really emphasize Honduras and Central America more broadly uh, and, and think about um, really what's been happening with the migration crisis and, uh, you know, really since 2014, but of course much longer with however we want to call it, the Central American migration or refugee crisis and the, all, all the agitation to uh, get kids out of cages and uh, moves to abolish ICE as a result of that. And now, of course, with COVID-19 ripping through these detention centers and these horrific conditions. But I'm interested in the way that the visual rhetoric of so much of this crisis has absolutely centralized either a mestizo sort of brown subject or an indigenous subject who's not black. And I guess I'm interested from your perspective, does does that visual rhetoric reflect the reality of this crisis? Oh, gosh, that's a really great question. Um, so I think, yeah. So no, right? Um no, there are Black Central Americans crossing the U.S.-Mexico border every single day, and they're not all Garifuna, right? Um, there are Creole, there are just Black Central Americans, right, um, who, you know, they don't get censored in Telemundo, right? They don't yeah. get censored in Univision. Um, they don't get to be on the cover of the Time magazine. Um, so I, I think there's a particular kind of racial construction that happens in the U.S. when we think about Central Americans. Um, and that has a longer legacy. I think it, it, I think it's easy for me to think, yes, Mestizaje travels well. This is what makes sense. Um, we all understand Central America to have a long history, uh, past, present, and future of indigenous communities. So certainly indigenous folks get really um, on the front of what we understand Central Americans to be, there's something that's really persistent, right? And the, the persistency here is the erasure of Black Central Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a persistency that I'm still thinking through what is it, right? And I don't want to be like, it's messy, sahe, and that's the culprit. I think there's something deeper there. I think there's something where... You know, I think Afro-Latinidad does this, right? It creates a lot of visib visibility for Black Latinos, Black Latinx folks, right? There's, I think we're in a moment where it's like 2020. Yes, there are Spanish-speaking Black people in the world, right? They exist. <laughs> it's not a small, you know, it's not a small community. Um, it's not, you know, it's also not your abuela, right? Like, you know, it's Black people that speak Spanish are not from some romantic past, right? They're, in, they're present and they're going to be part of the future. Um, but I do see a persistent erasure, and I think that persistent erasure has a lot to do well, with the notion of, well, Black Central Americans are actually disrupting what it means to be Latinx in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the, the fact that they don't get spoken about, right, um, a, a few folks have reported on the fact that a lot of reporters assume them to be Haitian and assume that they don't speak Spanish, um, and there's this right. assumption, right, with black people that they just don't speak Spanish. And it's like, well, no, right, <laughs> that that is an incorrect assumption, right, particularly if you're at the U.S.-Mexico border, um, regardless of whether they're coming from Central America, the Caribbean, or the continent, 
folks who've been there for months develop language abilities, right? So right. There's, there's ways to communicate. Um, but it's, it's also this persistent notion of they just simply don't exist. Yeah. And I think this is where um, more work, more scholarship that's happening now um, is really helping us to kind of disrupt the binary, this kind of dichotomy between brown and black, um, which I think is going to be really fruitful when we do think about the new world we need to create. Um, and maybe the new world just doesn't, there, we need to move beyond a politics of solidarity and a politics of visibility. Um, and I'm not really sure we're at that moment yet, um, particularly because when I think about the slogan, Latinx for Black Lives, um, it's actually Professor Yomara Figueroa who helped me think through it because I was really pissed. I was really pissed when I saw that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I was pissed particularly because I was like, what do you mean? We're, we're, we are black lives, right? And, yeah. and not in a moment of, not in a moment of like all Latinx people are black, right? Which is also kind of this also really problematic notion, right? That I think um, AOC spoke about, Ocasio-Cortez spoke about like um, uh, her subjectivity being Puerto Rican from the Bronx. Like she understood herself to always be black as well. Um, so I do think there's something interesting there around thinking of like the slogan Latinx for Black Lives pushing this notion that all uh, all Latinos are black. Yeah, feels very mestizaje to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little like uh, I don't know if that, but there's something that uh, Professor Figueroa helped me think through. Well, well, what does it mean when a white Latinx person or a mestizo Latinx person? wants to actually be in solidarity and actually wants um, black lives to matter in their families and their households and their communities. And I, and I have to start thinking about, well, how generative is this slogan? But also, at, at, at kind of a double-edged sword, um, what is it about the erasure that's happening, right? Because, yeah. you know, for, for Latinxes of African descent, our black lives have always been in contestation, right? And not just through Latinidad, right? But one of the things about um, being Black Latinx is that our read isn't always Latinx, right? And our yeah. read is simultaneous, and our read is not easily interchangeable, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on the scenario, depending in the space. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's I, I'm you really covered the last few things I wanted to be able to address with you, which is great because unfortunately we are out of time. But thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time and the invitation. Absolutely. Hi, all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the communications associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.